0: On Sunday night, we very quickly reviewed a few minutes in the end of Romans 1 and completed that thought where the Apostle Paul was driving home the condemnation of the Gentiles. And now, in chapter 2, we're going into yet another season of condemnation. We've talked about this a lot. There is going to be quite a bit... Of this condemnation until we get to chapter 3. But it's so important for us to embrace and to understand, and really for us to have the foundation of Romans set. Romans is so very important as it pertains to the doctrines of salvation. Romans is a great foundation as your understanding, and more importantly, God's understanding of justification sanctification, how we get to go to heaven, what it really means to be saved, how that process takes place. Uh, Christians should pay great attention to much of what happens in the book of Romans. It's a very consequential book. We have said that. The end of this chapter one, we talked about the essence of man's sinfulness. We talked about the expression of man's sinfulness, and then the extent of man's sinfulness, those uh, verses there at the end that give us the list or the characteristics of those people. Uh, There were some very tough words here, backbiters, haters of God. This is in verse 30 of chapter 1, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents. There was a lot there. And we expressed, we showed the extent of man's sinfulness and the consequence of that sin. Verse 27, it said, receiving in themselves that recompense of their error, which was meat. And what it is, is the law of sowing and reaping. There is a consequence even to uh, the types of sin, the types of lifestyle. Uh, the Bible here really starts to dig into the principles of sexual immorality. There'll be more of that as we go forward. But it gives the type of wrath here, one of the types of wrath, uh, the wrath of reaping what is sown. It will always cost men when they sin. It'll always cost. One of the greatest lies that the devil peddles is that sin can go without consequence or that sin can be overlooked, or that there are special deals to be made as it pertains to sin. And what the Apostle Paul is doing at the end of this chapter is giving us, number one, the warning of the reprobate mind that at some point, at some time, and only God knows when that is, uh, he will remove his hand from the situation, and he will allow that person in their sin, in their flesh, to get exactly what they want. Uh, their sin, their wickedness, the evil nature of their humanity, God will remove his restraint, he will remove his hand, and he will let them have exactly what they desire. He'll let them receive unto themselves even the earthly consequence of that lifestyle. And we talked about that, we talked about it in depth. If you missed the last two messages, we spent two messages finishing this thought from 28 to 32 on these verses and what it really means. And the reason we reviewed on Sunday night is because you cannot go forward in this thought and what he continues to do here until you understand everything that's happening at the end of chapter one. We have to set the foundation strongly for ourselves as we go through Romans. There's so much heavy doctrine and wonderful material. One misstep, if we, if we get off an inch here on the build... Our house is going to be twisted. It's going to be really messed up. We've really got to be very careful and meticulous. And even if it means us slowing down to where we spend three or four sermons on one verse, whatever it takes for us all to embrace and to understand what's being taught here, I believe as a pastor is vital, wholeheartedly. We must be full of faith, full of the Holy Ghost and have an absolute sound doctrinal understanding of everything that's preached from God's Word. That's why preaching is so heavy. It's not ever to be taken lightly. It's never to just be a show. If, if a man ever was to stand here and it be entertainment or uh, for himself to be seen, uh, he's in a messed up position. It's a holy place. That's why the old timers call this a sacred desk. So it's not just a simple Wednesday night Bible study, if you will, It's consequential, and it could even be consequential for man's soul. The Word of God reveals its truth, and it does so much to the human soul. Let's read the first five verses of chapter 2. Let's try to get this thought in our mind as we go forward tonight. Romans 2, 1. Therefore, thou art inexcusable. Paul's right there. The fact that the word therefore is there at the first Word the first sentence, the first verse, means that there is a connection to everything that has been said thus far. In consequence of, in light of everything that's been said, therefore thou, or you, a specific person, art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest, for wherein thou judgest another, Thou condemnest thyself For thou that judgest Doesest the same things But we are sure That the judgment of God Is according to truth Against them Which commit such things And thinkest thou this O man that judgest them Which do such things And doesest the same That thou shalt escape the judgment of god or despiseth thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long suffering his patience not knowing that the goodness of god leadeth thee to repentance but after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasur'est up to thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. The Apostle Paul is digging deep here. We're in four by four, we're in the mud, and we are continuing to dig down, going into the condemnation. Now we've passed from the Gentile and the pagan world, and now we're going into a season of self-righteous, pharisaical, holier-than-thou-attituded Jews who see themselves in a different light than that of which God actually sees them. People who feel like they have some sort of moral excellence, but it's moral excellence that's separated from God. In other words, it's righteousness that human beings can construct in their own power. It's righteousness that men can embrace in their own ability. This is not righteousness that comes from God. It's not morality that comes from the law. Rather, it's something that comes from human beings themselves. And what he's saying here is those people or this particular person that is at that moral place of human understanding... Who is at the holier than thou seat of judgment, looking down on other people without the righteousness of God in their own lives, are storing up for themselves the wrath of God. They're storing up for themselves. More judgment. There are verses in Hebrews and James that absolutely uphold the fact that to whom much is given, much is required, and to whom those people are that have been given much, more will be held against them at that day of judgment. The more truth that you possess, the more light that you have the more goodness of God that has been revealed unto you, you will give an answer for that light received, for that truth, for that goodness. It's biblical. You will answer for what you've been given. You will answer for what you've been shown, what has been revealed to you by the Holy Ghost of God. But for these people who are, again, understand without the righteousness of God, what does that mean? That they're lost. That these lost people are storing up for themselves more wrath and more anger from God at the day of judgment. This verse, I said it Sunday night, this passage especially, verse 1 and verse 2, are one of the greatest, most abused set of verses in all of the New Testament. People will use these two verses as their crowbar as their get out of jail free card, anytime someone even in love comes to them with a concern about something in their life, they'll use these verses as a shard of glass to cut the person who's come to them in love and say, well, you don't have a right to judge me. You can't judge me. You can't judge my life. That's not biblical. I can judge you. How am I to assess the fruit of, Of your life. Jesus said, You will know them by their fruit. You see, we take this uh, inference towards a lost person, and if we don't really understand what's being said, then we'll say, Well, you can't judge people. No, you have to judge people. You have to judge the morality of a situation. You have to know right from wrong. How do you do that without the Holy Ghost of God allowing you an opportunity to judge the situation or the character of a person? We have to be practical in our living. It's not that we live with horse blinders on. It's that we look at them in the right way. It's done in love. This does not give us the right to be the Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat police of Trinity Baptist Church or whatever group that you're in and get your record book ready and then the next time you come to church, well, did you see what he posted? Did you see what she said? Did you know where they went? Did you see, do, do we know what was in that Yeti? I bet it wasn't sweet tea. Don't act like you don't know what I'm talking about. That's not what this is. The judging allows us an opportunity to assess where we are and the relationships that we have, but it's judgment from the wrong type of people in the wrong way that stores up wrath of God. These are lost people. Now, let's move on from this because there's something in here tonight. It's very specific, my burden tonight, and I I don't want to get bogged down at any point in this study But especially yesterday and this afternoon, I cannot get away from one fact that everybody in this room, no matter how long you have been saved, no matter your position in the church, no matter if you teach Sunday school, no matter if you're a part of the E-Church, everyone in this church must understand what we're dealing with on the surface and what we're dealing with underneath as it pertains to what the Apostle Paul is saying. Now, Paul, as I said, is continuing to drill deeper. But what he is drilling deeper into, it's like going to the dentist and finding a cavity. What he keeps drilling out, in essence, is best summarized with two words. Total depravity. Total depravity. What the Apostle Paul is doing here is showing human beings... He's demonstrating for us, the church, what humanism is, what human beings are, apart from a radical transformation, a rebirth, a regeneration, the salvation given to you by God, this is the opportunity for you to read the ingredient label on the back of the human being and see the desperate need of every man, every woman, and every child of a head-on radical encounter, a head-on collision with the Holy Ghost of God. All this does is prove to us, shows us more how desperately we need God and how unholy human beings really are when left away or apart from God. And he's digging deeper into this condemnation. Paul is having to dig deeper and go farther because, really, in chapter three, about midway, we're going to start to see the construction of a beautiful building. It's going to be a tall building, and that building is going to reach from the lowest point on earth to the very throne room of heaven. And that building that the apostle Paul is going to use words to build is called justification, sanctification, the glorification that wakes, the propitiation of that sacrifice. He's gonna build this beautiful, tall building. But if we're gonna build a big, beautiful, tall building, then we've got to have a foundation to build that building on. If the foundation's messed up, if we build this on some sort of soft clay or sand, then we'll begin to build our building, get to the 50th story, and the whole thing will fall down. You must understand the human condition in its entirety before you can truly understand what God did for you at salvation. Salvation is no cheap thing. Salvation is not some sort of emotional interaction with God. Salvation is not the acknowledgement of the existence of God. The very demons from hell itself acknowledge the existence of our God, acknowledge the Trinity and its office work, acknowledge that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he came, that he died and resurrected himself in power. Even the demons in hell acknowledge that fact about who our God is. Acknowledgement of a God, acknowledgement of the deity of God is not salvation. And for us to understand our salvation, we must understand who we are and then look to Him for our hope. It's the only way it happens. This is why hell, this is why hell is full of good people who were nice, people that paid their taxes, people who worked hard and were married. And even people who stayed faithful to their husband or their wife. People that never gossiped. People that didn't do drugs, didn't drink. And in themselves, they found this moral high ground. Well, I'm going to back up and I'm going to look at all those things listed in chapter 1 at the end of the, of the chapter. And, and, and I, I'm not a backbiter. And I'm not a hater of God. And I'm not a homosexual, and I'm not a lesbian, and I'm not unmerciful. I'm kind to people. So I have in myself found the moral high ground. I'm better than they are. I have a a different way of living than they do. So in the end, when it all shakes out, God will have mercy on me or he'll have pity on me or he'll reward me for my moral high ground. That is one of the most saddest, horrendous things that could be said of anybody. Because if you stand on that moral high ground, and if you stand at the higher road in your own works and in your own doings, and you are doing it without Christ, then you are buying for yourself with your moral ground nothing. Morality is not Christianity. Morality is not salvation. Being a good person will get you nowhere with God. You say, well, how can that be? I I see elements of goodness in even people who claim to be open homosexuals. Do you remember what the Bible says about humans in the beginning being created in the image of God? There were elements of humans that were good. God made us to be perfect to live in the Garden of Eden but unfortunately our father Adam and Eve messed all of that up and since that time, there may be a flash in the pan of the old existence, of the old humanity, but it is overcome, it is broken, it is fractured, and there between God and human beings is a great chasm that your morality, that you're doing good, that you're being good, will get you sent to hell. It's not a popular truth in these days. but it's who we are apart from God. These are people who are looking into life and they're living under the rule of their own self-righteousness. And what that does, because of what Jeremiah the weeping prophet said about the human heart, it allows them to find the vindication and the justification for their willingness to admit that there is a God, but their rebellion to surrender to who that God is. In our circle, in our area, I used to hear it all the time. If I ever had an opportunity, and I'll be honest, the few times that I was able to witness to someone in the back of an ambulance, many times it would be met with this. I would say, sir, do you know if you died tonight or if this wreck that we just came and picked you up from, do you know if if this went differently? Do you know where you would be right now if that head-on collision had have killed you and we weren't in the back of this ambulance and going to the ER, but rather we were going to the morgue? And so many times I would hear nice people who worked hard for their money, who had calloused hands and sweaty T-shirts, cute little families, they'd say something like this. Well, me and the big man upstairs, we know each other. We've got a deal made. He knows me. He knows my heart. I'm a good person. I go to church at Easter. I, I tell my kids about Christmas isn't just about Santa Claus. And we're good. Breaks my heart. Because in our humanity, we will find for ourselves some sort of glowing light that we will call the inward goodness or the spirit of God. And it is a spirit, but it's the spirit of Adam that lives within us and not the Holy Ghost of God that indwells us as believers. You see, for everything that God has real, Satan has a counterfeit. And if there can be emotion, a fuzzy feeling, an opportunity to find the moral high ground, the human being will take it. That's who we are. This verse 3 really is the alarm. And thinkest thou this, O man, that thou judgest them which do such things and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? The issue is that people really don't understand what they are as sinners. You see, we began back in the 90s, especially in the 90s, the materialism of the day, the desire and the hunger for the dollar. We were so distracted. We were so blessed. You watch all the documentaries about September the 11th, and there's so much that points to where we were as a nation. We were being ooed and awed by bright, shiny objects. And even then, you begin to see a decline as it pertained to church attendance by even faithful people. You begin to see the message begin to change, to be more inclusive, to more lifestyles and more ways of living. Maybe even in ways that churches had never preached before, things began to change. And somehow we became comfortable allowing sin and allowing the old nature to somehow find a root, to find a place to coexist in the Christian's life. But the Bible teaches us that the two cannot coexist. And when we stop seeing God for who he is and experiencing, as Pastor Nathan preached a couple of weeks ago, about the glory departing, and we choose to begin to ignore our duty as Christians... Our duty is God's children. And we begin to back away from our expectations to be salt, to be light, to be different. Then we begin to lose sight of who God is. And we begin to forget who we were prior to our salvation. We can never lose sight of who God is. And we can never lose sight of what human beings are apart from Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Is sort of the pivot for a lot of this. It says, therefore, if any man be in Christ. If you're in Christ tonight, say amen. Okay, according to the Bible then. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. If he becomes a new creature the person that's in Christ, if the change has to be that radical, if it's not just some sort of band-aid applied to the wound, if it's a complete about-face of the former lifestyle, then what exactly is the old ways, the old things, the old man that has passed away? Well, the Bible teaches that all men as a consequence of Adam's fall, are born very particularly set. I want to give you those things and then we'll move on for the night. Number one, men are born morally corrupt. Morally corrupt. There is nothing within a human being that has not been saved that can find Anything that God will accept as good within Himself. The Bible talks about our righteousness, our goodness is as filthy rags. Mark 7:21 through 23, it says this: for from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, and murders, thefts covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an eye, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. And notice this verse. All these evil things come from within and defile the man. It comes from within. That is the portion that is not taught. When a two-year-old is born... When a two-year-old has been alive for two years and learns how to walk and go into your kitchen and get into your cookie jar, we've used this example before, and you told the child not to get in the cookie jar, you go to the restroom, you come back in, and your baby has chocolate all over its face like it has taken a dive in a Hershey's pool, and you go, did you eat the cookie? Who taught the kid to look at you in the eye with chocolate all over its face and say, "No." Who taught it that? It was born with that nature inside, morally corrupt. Every single one of us, no matter who your mama was, no matter who your daddy was, no matter your lineage and heritage as it pertains to preachers or ministry, no matter who you are, no matter the color of your skin, every single man, woman, and child in this room was born morally corrupt. But you will find in this world someone like Oprah Winfrey to tell you that that goodness that comes from you, that little glowy fuzzy feeling that feels like a cup of warm hot chocolate will be the thing that gets you into the afterlife of total peace and total calm away from the struggle and the war that is life on this earth. That is an absolute lie. There's nothing within mankind, no fuzzy feeling, no glowing light, no karma, no Buddhist mentality that will save you from the corruptness of yourself. Save the Holy Ghost of God getting hold of your life. Morally corrupt. Well, I'm not that bad. If you've not been saved if you've not been changed, if you've not been born again, then you're just a good morally corrupt liar. Morally corrupt. That's who we are. Secondly, we are enslaved to sin. Enslaved to sin. John eight thirty four. Jesus answered them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. Titus 3.3 For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving divers' lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Galatians 4, eight and 9 How be it then when ye knew not God. Pay attention to this verse. How be it then, when ye knew not God, ye did service unto them which by nature are no gods. But now, after that ye have known God, or rather are known of God, praise the Lord, how turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements, whereunto ye desire again to be in bondage? He was saying, you want to go back to wearing the chains and the collar? You want to go back and eat from the pigsty in the far country when you have access to the Father's table? Have you lost your mind? Have you lost some sort of understanding of what Christ accomplished on the cross for you? And it's the same truth every day of your life. If you allow any sin to creep into the well, it will spoil that entire well. All of the water will be contaminated. All of the water will be condemned. It will ruin you. It will cramp you. It will cause you not to grow. And you'll stay on this earth in your hidden pity sin as a slave. And when you get to heaven, you'll see the life that you could have had and the glory that you could have brought to God. And then that will be part of the tears that you'll have to weep in heaven that God will then have to wipe away from your face when he reveals to you what could have been if you would have just let go of your petty, wicked, rotten flesh. Maybe your cousin could have seen Christ and not gone to hell. Maybe it could have been your family didn't have to go through the divorce if you would have just let go of your sin. Sin will enslave even a believer. There is no room for us to allow sin into our lives. You say, well, you better be careful. You better live perfect. I have to get up every day and beg God to keep me away from me. Crucify me on the cross today, Jesus, with you. There's room on the cross, yes, for even you. Why do you think there's such a struggle, such a war in these days? Because there are so many Christians who have sin in their life, who are chained to the old man and can get no victory and can get no freedom and can get no prayers answered because they're still slaves to the old man. And we wonder. Sin will enslave you. The Apostle Paul is giving us an opportunity to evaluate ourselves. How be it then, when ye knew not God, ye did service unto them which by nature are no gods, but now ye know God, or rather are known of God, how turn ye again? How turn we again? I think part of the problem with Christians turning back, allowing the glory to depart, is the fact that we're in love with ourselves and our comfort and the perception that people have of us rather than we are in love with Jesus. We'd rather be seen in a particular light by even the world and those that are around us than we would be to be faithful to the one who bought and paid for us. This is tough. But if we are again, as I said, Sunday as a church, if this is more than a cute social experiment and some sort of nostalgic heritage project that goes back a few generations and we get cute t-shirts and we circle the wagons and wait for Jesus to come, if it's going to be more than that, And if spiritually we're going to go to the next level and see the next wave of converts and the next wave of God's men called to preach and the next wave of solidified, anchored families that are going to be able to withstand the storm, then God's people are going to have to get clean and understand that sin will always enslave you and your family. Dads, if there's sin in your life, there is a chain on your neck that's tied to sin and it's around your wife's neck and it's around your children's neck and you wonder why there's no peace in your home. It's because of your sin. And we're not gonna change. There will be no growth. There will be no new life until we get out the scraper and the cutter and begin to say, God, change me, mold me, and make me to look like you. Enslaved to sin. Thirdly, we're born the natural enemy. The natural enemy of God. Psalm 58.3. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they're born. Speaking lies. That's who I was. On March the 19th, 1990. At 24 and a half inches long And I don't know, 25 and a half pounds or something like that. That's one thing I can say I've been consistent at. Big youngin, And as cute as that burrito with hair looked, it looked like Babe Ruth had been in a boxing match. But as cute as that baby is, maybe the newborn that you've got at home as beautiful as your two-year-old or three-year-old daughter is, the Bible teaches clearly that that child needs someone to preach the truth and point to the fact that it was born a natural enemy of God. You say, no, not my child, an enemy of God. How dare you say that? It's who we are. You're starting to understand who we are. And see who we are and embrace who we are. And then when we see grace and mercy and we taste the honey and drink the milk from the Father's table, we'll start acting different and living different and treating each other different and being faithful to God's house because we want to please God and not be seen by the pastor or those around us. It's life-changing, the Word of God is. But we can't just pick the portions we please. We must consume all of it, and I was born a natural enemy of God. John 3:20 says, "For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved." He's saying, "Everyone that does evil that harbors wickedness and sin hates light." Because when you get in the light as a wicked person, it begins to expose your wickedness. It begins to expose your sin. It begins to expose your flesh. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light. That word there, light, in Greek is phos. Say it with me. Phos. There's another instance in the book of John where phos is used. John 8, 12 says, Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the phos of the world. It's the same word. The phos, the light that Jesus says here that I am the light. He's saying I am the phos. Of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the foes of life, the light of life. But this verse in 320 says, For everyone that doeth evil hateth the foes. Humanity is born, bred, hating the foes, hating light, hating truth. And Jesus said, I am the Fos. I am the light. The Bible teaches that wicked people, whether they want to admit it or not, sinful men apart from God, they actually hate Christ himself. That is the essence of humanity. That is the essence of the fallen nature. That we would hate the foes, the light. We would hate even Jesus himself. And you see those people that feel exposed and embarrassed by their sin when it's exposed by the light. Human nature is to keep it hidden. That's, that's who we are. I I don't want you to know about my sin. Are you with me tonight? I still have you. That's human nature. I don't want you knowing about my problems, my issues, my sin, my wickedness, my fallenness, my my petty thing that I hold on to that I refuse to let go of because I'm rebellious at the very core of who I am. I don't want you to know that. I don't want God to see it. The truth is you can hate light, you can hate truth, and you can fool your preacher You can fool those around you. You can fool your wife. You can fool your husband. You can fool all types of different categories of people. But on the list of people you can fool, the Holy Ghost of God will never be found on the list. He knows. Why not just surrender and say, clean me, make me, mold me, rip out anything that doesn't look like you and allow me the grace and the mercy to stay close. Ephesians 2, 12 and 13 says that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. This is who you were but verse 13 is delicious. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. I get to change. I get to... be a new creature i don't have to stay in the pigsty dying with the world but rather i get an opportunity to experience grace and mercy deposited into my account by god on purpose my salvation wasn't some happenstance It wasn't some fluke. It wasn't some emotional little signing of a card and raising of a hand. It was a head-on collision with the Holy Ghost of God. And He changed me. And I've not been the same since. Have I been perfect since my salvation, Miss Debbie? No. Are there things I wish I could change even in my new birth? Yes, My flesh is like a wild, vicious animal that will take me off the cliff if I don't get it under control. And that can only happen through the word of God, the power of prayer, and the faithfulness of the saints to persevere until that day. It's the only way it happens. But until that happens, there's a war. There's a struggle. And if you're not careful, if you're not steadfast In staying in the book, staying with the stuff, then you'll wind up in a place where a Christian has no business being. Lastly, you were born unable to please God, unable to please God. Or even of themselves, of ourselves, in our nature, in our human ways. Were we able to turn to Christ for salvation? Listen to me. Don't mix my words. Don't put a label on this. Just embrace the truth of God's word. The best way I know to put this is that I did not find Jesus. What's a song that you sing that Squire Parsons wrote that we sing there at Caiaphas' house when we're down in that pit where Jesus was held the night before he died? He came to me. Yeah, he came to me. I did not convict myself for my sin. My salvation process did not include me going Oh, I'm a pastor's grandson, I'm a missionary's son, and I I, I owe it to God, I'll go to him. Uh Uh-uh, that's not how I got saved. I didn't convict myself. I didn't persuade myself. I couldn't even see Christ as Lord in my own life, nor myself as a sinner, until the Holy Ghost of God came by on the right-hand side, on the second row, in the old building, And he came to me. I didn't sign a banana and become one of the bunch. I don't remember what I prayed. I remember I got up out of my seat. And I knew that I was a sinner. And that I needed to be saved. And in one instant, I believe with all my heart, the moment I responded to the wooing and the drawing and the persuasion of the Holy Ghost, right then and there, I got regenerated, born again, saved, saved, saved. And no matter what happens in this life, nothing will ever take it away from me. And anything that challenges that is nothing more than spiritual warfare. The reason some of us struggle with the doubt of salvation is because we're not willing to let go of our pride and completely cast ourselves at the mercy of what the Holy Ghost of God did when he came to you. Confidence in authority. Confidence in authority. Therefore, thou art inexcusable. Oh man. Holy Father, in Jesus' name, Lord, I thank you for the truth of your word that's sharper than any two-edged sword. God, I thank you for the liberty to preach in this place tonight. God, I thank you for the authority that we find when we study thy word and hide it in our hearts. Now Lord, tonight my Burden—it's been with me since early this morning. It's for the occupants of this room tonight. And God, I can't see, I can't know, I can't understand the things that you do. And Lord, I don't know who's saved here tonight. I don't know who's lost here tonight. And God, no matter what I say from this pulpit, Lord, I can't do it. Or there's not an invitation that I can give. There are no words, no prose, no catchy phrases, no methodology that can save a single soul in this room. But Holy Ghost of God, in this moment, I pray that the person, God, the people, God, that are in this room and they're lost and undone and they're living a lie. God, I pray that tonight you'd break them. God, do what only you can do and convict them. God, I pray if there's someone here tonight that's lost and undone without Jesus. Lord, I pray, God, that their bed would be so uncomfortable tonight. I pray that their pillow would be so would be like a rock that there would be no peace and no comfort in their home God that food would become bland God that the pressures of life would become overwhelming in their life and that God you would devastate them to the point of persuasion and that you would save them from an eternity in hell God we pray that you would inspect our hearts. If there be any strand, any strain of rebellion, Lord, we pray that you'd get it out of our church. Lord, I know what you've put in my heart. God, I know what you've shown us through your word. Now, Lord, we put it in your hands. We trust you. We believe you. We ask you to do what only you can do. We thank you for this beautiful, beautiful Bible, the word of God. Lord, thank you for our salvation. Thank you that I don't have to go into an eternity and ever be separated from God. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Protect us, keep us, encourage us. For the one that's here tonight that's in a difficult place, for a child of God who's discouraged here tonight, for one that's in a most particular situation, Lord, encourage them. God, remind them that they belong to the King of kings and the Lords of lords. And that you are the God that owns the cattle on a thousand hillsides. That you're capable and that you're able to meet their need, even tonight. We believe this. and We trust you. We ask you to lead, guide, and direct in all of our lives. Touch us in Jesus' name. We ask all these things. Amen.